Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leave for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak, people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come to you and ask that you would take these words of Jesus, these, these founding words for his community, which is us, the church, and would you breathe life into them, that we would be a people who embody everything Jesus wants us to embody. And we pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1962, Sam Walton founded what is now today the largest business company in the world, Walmart. And he founded Walmart with a singular vision to champion the common person. Walton grew up in the Depression, and so he understood the concept of hard-earned money. He was the common person, and so he wanted to build a store that served and employed common people. He built stores in rural places so that people would not have to drive long distances to urban centers to get what they needed. He perfected the big box store so that you could go to one store to get everything you needed, which would have been incredibly important to blue-collar people. It would save time and money and gas. He cared about creating a company that people wanted to work for that would serve the common person. In the words of Simon Sinek, who tells this story in his book, Start With Why?, Everything Walton said and did was a celebration of average people, and all his decisions were based on his desire to serve them. So Walton never took a salary of more than $500,000, even though his company was worth hundreds of millions. He drove a pickup truck all his life. He got his haircut at the same place all his life. And when people would question him why he lived that lifestyle in light of all his success, he'd be offended. <laughs> he was a common man to his death. But when Walton died, Simon Sinek says in his book, Start With Why, everything about Walmart changed. 
The cynic was present at Walmart's company shareholder meeting in 2011, and he says Walton would have been disgusted at what, he, at what happened. And Walmart paid millions of dollars for celebrities to come and MC and to perform, not the common man. When Walmart's VP of people, personnel, got up to speak in charge of creating a good working experience for their employees, she didn't champion any of the people that worked for company, but o- the company, but only talked about how much Walmart had cut costs. When the CEO got up to speak, he spoke nothing of the common man, but only spoke about how much more they were making, how much they were growing as a company. Sinek said the original vision of Sam Walton to champion the common man was entirely gone. And because of that, today, Walmart is a very controversial company. They are facing dozens of lawsuits for the way they've treated their employees, questionable labor practices. They've grown. They've made lots of money. They're bigger. They're the biggest company in the world today. But I think few people would say they serve the common man the way Walton cared so much about. I know what you're thinking. Tim, why, why do you care about Walmart? <laughs> what a weird intro. And the truth is, I don't care about uh, Walmart. Here's why I tell that story. A cynic points out that often when a company begins to have enormous success, they lose their founding vision. And they become only about repeating and creating more growth and more success while leaving behind the whole reason they began in the first place. And I wonder, in this American Christian landscape, Has the church lost the founding vision of Jesus? That's really the heart behind this series we're in through the Gospel of Luke, which is is called Rediscovering Jesus. That in my own life, I wanted to go back. Like, What did Jesus teach and say? What was his life really about? And and the reality is the church, 2,000 years post-Jesus, has experienced enormous success. Two billion Christians today around the world. And yet, success often leads to arrogance and a loss of founding vision, being obsessed only with growth and not with why we're here in the first place. And the reality is, and we talked about this in the announcement portion, in a few months we will move into a new building. And I don't know what will happen. It could be a bunch of new people show up and we grow really quickly. Or like one guy may show up with his dog and that's it. And we grow by one person and a dog. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but here's what I do know. If we experience success, it will be even easier than it is today, and already is for us, to lose the founding vision of Jesus and become more about growth and success and achievement. So for the next three weeks, we're going to do a little series within the series of Rediscovering Jesus, a series focusing on what it means to be a community of Jesus, what his founding vision of his community was to be. And that's what our text for this morning is. Jesus uh, is laying out his founding vision. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And you have this moment where Jesus goes, he prays, he selects 12 disciples, people gather around him, and then Jesus lays out what for Luke is his founding sermon, what his, his original vision of what he wants to create And so we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at that together. What does it mean to be a community of Jesus? What does it mean to to follow his founding vision? 
And so this morning we're going to talk about three things around his vision. Next week we'll talk about two things, and third week is Andrew, Andrew's preaching. I don't know what he's going to talk about, but I know what I'm talking about. And here are the first three. The first this morning is that to be a Jesus community is to be a community of prayer. That before there's a sermon, before Jesus gives his mission statement, before Jesus says anything, the first thing he does is he goes out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. Jesus prayed all night. Why? Because his center of everything, his center of existence, is God the Father. And prayer is where we keep God's center first. Jesus is about to take his mission into the real world, and people are going to gather around him. They're going to create expectations for him. They're going to begin to, to press in on him. But that is not the center for Jesus. Jesus' center is not the people. It's not the community. It's God the Father. And the way we keep God centered in our own church community is through prayer. Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor, author, who's been, been crucial to my own understanding of what prayer is, says something that will shape our prayer life in the months um, to, uh, to come. And in the quote I give you, uh, Peterson's actually talking about worship more so than prayer. And yet worship is, worship is prayer. Prayer and worship are where we put God at the center. We focus our attention and devotion on him. And so, so Peterson says this about worship, but this is the same way he talks about prayer. But I like the way he puts this. Peterson writes, Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from the center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks, at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. People who do not worship or pray are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world, with no steady direction and no sustaining power. Let me just say, like, that's been my experience as a church pastor in this American context, is every few years some famous pastor finds a new way to church, and you, you have to do it this way, or the church will go, like, go away forever, right? If you don't follow this one guy's latest vision, um, you know, you, it's, all going, it's all going away. And so you see the church do, like, there's, you know, churches spasm and jerk, and they follow this vision and that vision. And Peterson says, if you do that, like, there's no restlessness. And I think what's most important is you lose your sustaining power. Our sustaining power does not come from how cool we are, how good we do relevant, you know, relevance to the rest of our culture, how good our sermons are, how good our music is. All of those things matter. Right? I'm not saying let's be terrible at all those things. But those are not our sustaining power. Our sustaining power is the presence and person of God. Our uh, primary global partner here for Shawnee is the China Partnership. And, and for the last uh, several years, we've tried to find what ba uh, better ways to partner with them, to deepen in relationship with them. And so, you know, in particular, we worked with a church in Kunming. And, and, you know, we'd asked them, how can we help you? How, how can we support you? And they keep giving us the same answer. And the answer is always pray. And I'm like, but, but we're Americans, we have so much we can do for you. We have so much money we could give you. We have so many ways of doing ministry that could bless you. We have so many great leadership tips, smart methods. Just, if you would just let us in a little bit, we could give you so much. And they're like, no, we're good. Just pray. You probably don't have a method of how to overturn a communist dictator, so just pray for us, right? The leaders of the Chinese church say to the American church, would you just go, all, go out all night and pray? And all of us who partner with China, I think we struggle with that. We want to do. We want to spend. 
We want to give. And just pray. This week, the, the pastor in Kuming I mentioned, uh, he sent me this picture, which is their worship service. In a new season of persecution, government crackdown, the way they gather together is through technology, through gathering, video conferencing. They also gather in person throughout the city, but this is the primary way they gather together. And listen, I don't want to glamorize the Chinese church. They're not perfect, just like we're not perfect. But they are centered in prayer, and they have the sustaining power that's getting them through persecution and abuse. And now, like this disease, the coronavirus. Just this morning, I got an update. The the church in Wuhan, or or some of the churches related in Wuhan, uh, last week, 400 uh, Chinese Christians went out into the city. Right. So at this point, 400,000 people in the city have died of the coronavirus in Wuhan, about 4% of the city population. But 400 Christians go out to share the gospel and hand out masks at risk to their own lives, to their own safety. They have a sustaining power because they are centered in prayer. And the church is to be a community of prayer. And so as I think about our move into August, there's lots of things we have to get done practically, right, that are important. You know, sound systems and paints and furniture and all these things. But the most important thing that we need between now and August, which we're all praying for, we're not promising, we're praying for it, okay? The most important thing we need is a prayer team. And some of you, if you're like, you know, I can't, I can't serve kids, um, let's be honest, I shouldn't greet anybody, right? Like, I shouldn't greet anybody, let's be honest. But, like, I'm not a greeter, I'm not a warm person. Um, what can I do? You can pray. And we need, especially on Sunday morning, because what I've encountered more than, you know, the first month and a half of ministry here is, I, like, I have come up with my own limits. I've come against my own limits. There are things I, have, I can't do anything in the face of. But get before God and pray, and we need more of those, those people. And so if that's, if that's your heart, we need you, and I hope you'll talk to me, because that, that is priority one for me. Because we can, we can get a lot of things right, and if we get having God as our center wrong, it nothing else matters. We are to be a community of of prayer. That is our founding vision. That's where Jesus starts. Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't start with, okay, here we got things to do. Here they are. No, he he gets away from everybody. He prays all night. And then he comes. He names his 12 disciples. He preaches his first sermon. But first, he prays all night. We are to be a community of prayer first. And second, uh, we are to be a community of, of healing. So Jesus, he selects uh, his 12 disciples. We'll come back to that in a second. But then this, this happens next. So Jesus prays all night. He selects 12 disciples. And then he came down, verse 17, with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. <clears throat> excuse me. And a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. Verse 18. Who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Before Jesus preaches or teaches, he welcomes people in their, their weaknesses and in their infirmities and in their sickness and, and heals them. As I've read through the Gospel of Luke a number of times, one of the, one of the central things I've wrestled with is it's clear Luke sees the healing ministry of Jesus as central to his, his messiahship, his claim to divinity. And then if you read on in the book of Acts, it's clear the healing ministry of the church was central to their existence and their growth. <clears throat> and so what does that mean for us as a community? Like the question a lot of Christians wrestle with today is, is that still in action today? Is the healing ministry of God still at work? 
Um, and let me answer that question with two words. Is healing still central to the work of the church today? No. Yes. Right, so first, the no. Um, and once it's this clear in the New Testament, there are moments when God says, uh, no, I'm not going to heal this. And I think in particular of Paul in 2 Corinthians, he pleaded for God to remove a thorn from his flesh. And God said, no, this actually, this, this weakness is important, and that's gonna, this is going to be a means of your ministry. I will not heal you. Now, and in another sense, like, it's just obvious, right? The, the biggest proof that, that the healing ministry of Jesus is, is different today than it was his own day is that, that Christians die. Right, like if you had a perfect healing ministry like Jesus has here, then no, like we'd have Christians here that were 2,000 years old. Right? It's like they never, we kept praying for them to be healed. They kept getting healed. And then it's just old Christians walking around. But that doesn't happen. Christians die. So in one sense, we are in a new age. And yet, I don't think you can read the New Testament and walk away with the sense that, that healing is no longer a part of our ministry. That Jesus uses healing as evidence that the kingdom of God is present among us. And I think we as a church should fully push into that reality. In one sense, God says no, but in another sense, we have expectation of healing. And an example of this, in our, our teaching team uh, a couple weeks ago, a staff member at another one of our campuses has had MS for 10 years. And he said in that meeting, he's like, there's no doubt in my mind that the reason why I have not had a relapse in the last 10 years is my congregation has been praying for me. And yet he has MS. He's taking the drugs. It hasn't gone away. And yet his experience of MS has, has not happened in a way that it should have because he believes his congregation is praying. And I think that's a good metaphor of, of the world in which we live. Yes, there's still brokenness, disease, evil among us. And yet God heals in unique ways. And we should expect that to happen. And yet the aim of healing in Jesus' ministry, is not so that we don't have disease anymore, not so that we're, we're sick, not sick anymore. There's a bigger um, aim in Jesus' mind than that. And it's, I think, best illustrated by a story later in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is entering in his, into a city, and as he's entering into a city, ten uh, lepers call out to him, crying out for their healing. And, and to have leprosy in this day would have been brutal. Um, one, you would have been uh, cordoned off from the rest of your community. You would have been separated from your family. You would have been alone with other lepers. And on top of that, you had this disease that would have been slowly eating away at your body and killing you. So this was just, it's just been a devastating existence. And so they encounter Jesus, and, and they encounter Jesus. They plead for healing, and Jesus heals all of them on the spot. And this is a 10 go away and leave. One, however, comes back to Jesus. And we read this. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. That last line, your faith has made you well. The, the word well there is actually the word for salvation. Your faith has saved you. And what this, throughout Luke's gospel, it's clear. Jesus is not just interested in like getting you into like a spiritual tube salvation. And then you get, you, you know, one day you get up to heaven, everything will be, will be okay. No, no, the salvation of Jesus is whole. It's your physical existence. It's your emotional, your relational, your spiritual. It's a whole body experience. And like I said a second ago, that doesn't mean all of our physical things are healed. That doesn't mean that. 
Sometimes God says no. And yet, and yet Jesus is interested in healing, which is why Jesus doesn't begin his ministry by preaching at people. He begins by receiving them and their weakness and their disease and caring for them individually and showing them that he's interested in their healing, their salvation, their wholeness. And, that's, and, and yet, the story of the ten lepers makes clear, Jesus didn't just do that so that you can, you can feel better about yourself or so you can be happy. It's so that you can, you can actually re-experience and re-enter the kingdom of God. So that you can turn back and follow Jesus' feet and worship him. And so listen, I, I wish I could get like specifically what this means. I don't know what this means. I just know people walk into our doors. We all walk into these doors with all kinds of stuff. And Jesus cares about all of it. The physical, the relational, the emotional, the spiritual. He cares about all of it. And we're not just here to say, hey, one day you can go to heaven. But we're here to say, your faith in Jesus can make you well. Turn back, come and praise him. He wants your healing. That's who we are as a community. We're a community of prayer. We're a community of healing. And then thirdly and finally, we are a community called by name. Uh, by far the most difficult thing in this, uh, this passage is the, the blessing and woes, which I read at the end of, of the passage. Jesus, he names the 12 disciples. He heals everybody. Then he starts preaching, and it's, it's just really interesting. He says, blessed are a certain group of people, and woe to another group of people. And, and blessed in the group just means happy. So Jesus is saying, if you're like this, you're happy. And this is very confusing, because th- we would not attach this list of people to happy. Right? Jesus says, if you are poor, you're happy. If you are hungry, you're happy. If you're weeping, if you're in mourning, you can be happy. If you have a terrible reputation, if people don't like you, you can be happy. And then he flips it, and he, all the things that we think would make us happy, he's like, no, 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 no. If you're rich, whoa. Which means this is awful. This is bad. If you're, this is bad if you're rich. If you're not hungry, that's bad. If you're laughing right now, that, that's not good. If you have a really good reputation, that's, this, is, this is it's a sign you're in trouble. And if, if you would have sat and listened to this, you'd be like, wait a minute. Love the, love the prayer, love the healing. What? <laughs> this is not how the world works. And to understand what's going on here, we need to go back to the 12 disciples and the all-night prayer of Jesus. Because when he selects the 12 disciples, we could easily miss what would have been obvious to the people who would have known these original 12 disciples, which is that Jesus... He picks two people that he should not have picked. Actually, he picks three people he should not have picked, but I only have time to talk about two. The first one is he picks Matthew, who's a tax collector. And Matthew, as a tax collector, everyone would have hated because he was a part of the Roman oppression. He was, he was the man. And he was, would have financially probably abused people and would have exploited them. Like, this is a, he was not a good guy, but Jesus picks him, lets him in. Another guy Jesus picks is Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot the zealots, they, they waged war against the man. Sometimes it's literally like in violence. They, they fought and attacked Roman oppressors. And now you have like the guy who hates the man and the man, Matthew and Simon, the zealot, in community with one another. Jesus puts both of them as a part of his originally founding 12. This would be even more controversial. And I mean this, even more controversial. Had, had, if Jesus lived today and he had picked Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi as a part of his 12. Now y'all are awake. All right, let's go. (laughs) But they are founding members of Jesus' community. How is that possible? 
And it has everything to do with what Jesus is doing in these blessings and these woes. There's two, there's two reasons why this is possible. The first is that the church is a backwards community. When Jesus says the happy life is the poor life, the happy life is the hungry life, the happy life is the one where you've ruined your reputation because you serve Jesus. These are not like things you go and do. It's right. It's like Jesus isn't saying, hey, you, gotta, like, you better be poor or you're in trouble. You better stop eating and starve yourself. Or you're, and that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's undermining the way people thought in that day. See, in that day, if you were rich, you were important, clearly blessed by God. If you were, um, if you were full, you were clearly blessed by God. If you, but on the other hand, if you were poor, if you, were, if you had leprosy, if you were in poverty, clearly God has a problem with you. And Jesus says, no. It's not how it works in my community. The value systems of this world are completely turned upside down in my kingdom. So a, a system that values political partisanship and, and hatred of enemies, which we'll talk about next week, Jesus says, not, that's not how it works in my kingdom. And so the way Matthew and Simon come in is Jesus looks at them and says, your zealotry and your tax collector status, you must leave behind. And now my community defines your identity first and foremost. We are backwards to the value system of the world. I think of it like this. When I, when I was growing up, uh, for a while, the, the rap group Criss Cross was really popular. No one has any idea why, um, but they were popular. And their big thing was they, they, actually, they wore their clothes backwards. That was their marketing tool to get people like me to listen to their music, and it worked. Uh, and so one day at school, I remember we had crisscross day, and I was so excited. You got to go, to go to school wearing your clothes backwards, which I couldn't wait. Until the day came, and I actually put my clothes on backwards, and it turns out there's a reason people don't wear their clothes backwards. It's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. And I, listen, if, you're, if we are to be our community uh, of Jesus in this world, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to feel like you're wearing clothes Backwards, And if it doesn't feel like that, if it feels like we just fit in and it's easy and there's no tension and there's no pushback, you're not in this, we're not defined by Jesus' founding vision anymore. Being a Christian, being a part of his community is like wearing your clothes backwards. It is backwards. And it's why I started uh, with Walmart. Is that the world is always going to push back on the, the values and things Jesus cares about to get us to care about the things the world values and cares about. Things like money, power, attention, fame, pleasure. And I don't know, maybe you don't follow this, the church world like I, I do, but there have been a number of just stunning failures in the last couple, couple of weeks. I mean, people who have books that were on my bookshelf, that's like, how did that happen? And you go to each one, and, and the church began to value money, power, attention, fame, pleasure. They lost the founding vision of Jesus. It became about something else, and they fell. So I would just ask, church, are we backwards? Is your life backwards? When you go into the world, um, do you feel like I felt walking into that school system, which is like, my clothes are on backwards right now. This is not comfortable. <laughs> so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are hungry, blessed are those with a bad reputation because of me, blessed are those who weep now. What Jesus is saying is the value system of the world, I'm, I'm, I'm overturning it. 
And if you're in a position of poverty, if you're in a position of hunger, if you're in a position of mourning, that's okay. You're welcome in my kingdom. So the church, is, we're a backwards community. <laughs> and that's because, second, the church knows that the people that most people think are out actually can be in. The church knows the outs are in. And what I think is central to this value system of Jesus is that there is dignity to every human life. Then in that day, if you had leprosy, Jesus, was, you know, the community was like, no, you did something, you sinned, go work that out, you're expelled. If you were poor, people thought, you must have done something, right? We see this, there's a moment, someone who's blind comes to Jesus, and the disciples even at this moment ask Jesus, well, who sinned, him or that guy's parents? Because clearly, if he's blind, someone sinned, it's that guy's, you know, it's someone's fault. Who's, and Jesus is like, no, it's, it's not anybody's fault. And he corrects their, their theology, and that's a part of what's central to our own community, is we don't look at people and the values or the, the practices or the, their position and define them as out. We don't do that. Or again, in the words of, of Eugene Peterson, he writes this about the church community. So the congregation is composed of people who, upon entering a church, leave behind what people on the street name or call them. A church can never be reduced to a place where a person is labeled. It can never be a place where gossip is perpetuated. Before anything else, it is a place where a person is named and greeted. Whether implicitly or explicitly, in Jesus' name, a place where dignity is conferred. Peterson says that the church is to be a place where no one is ascribed a label, where no one is gossiped about, spoken about behind their back. It is a place where dignity is conferred. And I would just say, in your presence in this community, so we think about this just individually, all of us, do you give dignity to the people around you or the people who walk into this place? Are you conferring dignity on others? Or are you stripping it away by labeling them, by speaking about them when they're not present, by having a spirit of accusation towards anyone? Because here's the deal. We're in a community of sinners, which means people are going to wrong you, they're going to frustrate you, they're going to hurt you, they're going to act out of their own brokenness in moments. And in those moments, do you confer dignity and speak, speak to them in Jesus' name, or do you take it away? Uh, when I was in, in college, I, uh, I took a church planning class, and uh, it was a team of three of us, and we, we studied the town of Mascuda, Illinois, which I don't expect any of you to know. But it was a suburb, a distant suburb of St. Louis, and one of the, the assignments was the three of us had to go to Mascuda and visit every church in town. There were about 11, 11 of them. So we hit, I hit three in, in one Sunday. Um, and I'll never forget like, just walking into three churches for the first time and just how awkward of an experience that is. And service, the first service I went to was early, early service of one church. And uh, it, it's probably not a church I would worship at. It's theologically very liberal. Um, so liberal, I probably even question the denomination whether or not they still represent Jesus um, anymore. But I, I still went. It's about 50 people, mostly older. And the service, it didn't do much for me. The sermon didn't do much uh, for me. But afterward, all of these people saw young college students, and they pounced. They surrounded me. They invited me to their potluck breakfast in the basement of the church. They basically kidnapped me to the, breads, uh, to the breakfast, but it was a good kidnapping because it was a kidnapping with bacon at the end of it. <laughs> and I just sat at a table, these strangers, total strangers, and they asked me questions about my life when they found out I was going to be a pastor, about what kind of pastor I wanted to be. I, the first time, 
theologically totally different places. And I just felt dignity conferred onto me through bacon. At Church 3, I was actually looking forward to because it was same theological stream as me. They had drums, which is always a good sign for me as a drummer. And I was tracking, but then the sermon started. And one of the pastors uh, sat down next to me, which I made the classic exit. That's why you always got to grab the outside of the aisle, right? Don't leave. That's the exit. That's the exit strategy. And if you don't have an exit strategy, a pastor will come and take it from you. And he did. He sat right next to me. and, And during the sermon, the pastor, like three times, said, this may be your first Sunday with us. Which it was obviously, I was the only person that was the first Sunday there. And it's like, this may be your first Sunday with us, and this is the Sunday you're going to turn back to God. And it was so obvious he was talking about me, and I wanted to leave, but my exit strategy was gone. I had to say, and the pastor had a blue suit on, which was like, dude, it's like a bright blue suit. I was so uncomfortable. Like, even my introvert, like, you know, vibe I was putting off, he still sat down next to me, and I'd sit through the whole sermon, and I was just uncomfortable the whole time. It was clear, like, they were, they were gunning for me. Uh, they didn't care about me as, as a person. I was a topic for conversation, not a person with dignity. And I want to be clear, I, I think as a church, we are more like the first church with, with the bacon breakfast. I think we're more like that. And yet, um, there's no doubt in my seven years at Christ Community, there have been moments where we as a church have lost this vision of being a welcoming place, conferring dignity on others. We have lost it in moments. And I think we're going to enter into a season where it will be very easy for us to lose it. Because in most human communities, the people who frustrate us, who let us down, who disappoint us, we stop holding, or we stop conferring dignity. We hold a grudge. We accuse them out loud, behind their backs, or underneath our breath, in our hearts. We stop seeking their good. We might even start seeking their ruin. But not in Jesus' church. In Jesus' church, the moment we start thinking, that person's out. Jesus says, nope. Actually, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep now. Blessed are those whose reputation have been ruined. In the church, we call each person by name. Dignity conferred. A person in the image of Jesus conforming more and more to his own image. Every one of us, and every one of us participates in helping each other become the person Jesus is calling us to be. Sam Walton's vision of a company to serve the common person died with him. And while there are moments, especially in the last couple years, I've wondered, is the vision of Jesus, is that dying with his church And I'm glad it's not because unlike Walton, who died and things have changed, in our case, Jesus did die, but he did not remain dead. Which means his his vision of a community of prayer, of healing, a community where every person is called by name is is as alive as he is. So the question for us this morning isn't do we recapture our dead founding vision, uh, dead founding person's vision of our ministry. No, the, the question is will we, back to point one, center our lives around God and his vision for what type of community we are supposed to be. And the way we join him is we never forget who Jesus was, the person he was, the story that he gives to us, the gospel, which is that Jesus had the riches of heaven, but he became poor for us. He had the feast of heaven for eternity, and he gave 
that up to come to earth and begin his ministry fasting for 40 days to break the spiritual strongholds that exist in all of us. Jesus had infinitely, uh, infinite capacity of joy. I don't think heaven is a place where no one laughs and everyone looks at each other seriously. I think they were laughing in heaven. But Jesus came that up, gave that up to embrace a life that led him to, to weeping before Jerusalem, before he entered and was put on a cross. Jesus had the best reputation anyone could have imagined. He was worshipped nonstop by celestial beings that are way more impressive than you and I. He had an incredible reputation and he gave it up. To come into our world to be called names, to be spit on, and to be put on a cross is a common criminal. All for you and for me. So that we who are poor could become rich. So that we who are hungry could be filled. So that we who weep now could belly laugh for joy. So that we who, when we follow Jesus, may ruin our reputation may have a new name, a new dignity conferred onto us so that we could create a community that could speak that vision to a world that is poor, that is hungry, that is broken. That is our founding vision. May we never lose it. Let's pray. God, everything I just said is, it makes no sense. That Jesus, who is rich, became poor. That Jesus, who is full, went, went hungry. That Jesus, who laughed for joy, wept. That Jesus, who is the Son of God, who deserves all glory and honor and praise, was crucified as a common criminal. None of that makes sense. And yeah, God, that, that is the founding reality all of us are to live by and that our community is to be surrounded. And because, God, that's so hard to believe, it's just going to be so easy for us to, to move into other values, other visions, other ways of being. Protect us from that. And let us live into this beautiful, contrary vision that Jesus has given us that is who he is. God, help us be that, we pray by your spirit. Amen.